This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey everyone, the Pregnancy Workbook is out in the world now. I've seen it on Amazon and also at Target online. I'm so excited it's there. And one other place that I was really excited to see it is at Powell's Bookstore, one of the largest independent bookstores. And you can get it online. For those of you who have the Pregnancy Workbook already, I would absolutely love a review from you. The more reviews we get, especially on Amazon, the higher it gets in the rankings and the longer it will stay visible on the front page for people who need it most. I'd love to hear what you think of the book. Either post a review on Amazon or even if you just want to send me a message and tell me what you think, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for supporting the book so that the book can support others. Welcome to Mom and Mine, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. In continuing to celebrate Maternal Mental Health Awareness Month, we are going to take a dive into cultural factors of perinatal mental health. Our guest today, Divya Kumar, is going to be talking about the work that she does supporting Black, Indigenous, people of color through the perinatal mental health journey. We talk about quite a few interesting aspects of how culture and immigration impacts perinatal mental health and mental health in general. Divya is a South Asian American psychotherapist with a public health background who specializes in perinatal mental health, trauma, and anti-oppression work. Her work connects clinical services with public health by addressing unmet needs in direct perinatal mental health care and the structure and delivery of perinatal support services. She is one of the co-founders of the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, a program within Postpartum Support International. She is also a commissioner on the Ellen Story Commission on Postpartum Depression in Massachusetts. She writes about the intersections of race, trauma, and perinatal mental health, and she is here to shed a lot of light and good perspective for us today on the nuance and intricacies of engaging in the therapeutic process. So let's meet Divya. Welcome, Divya. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here with you. It is great. I'm really happy to know you professionally and a bit personally and to have been around you in this perinatal mental health world. And uh, you do so many fantastic things for the the cause and, and the passion here. And 
really specifically, I'm so excited to get into what you'd like to talk with us about today. So yeah, if you can, even though we've already gone through your bio, if you can like hone in a little bit on, you know, what you'd like to make sure people hear about today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And really, it's so wonderful to be in this world professionally and personally and all of that with you, with PSI and all of the work that we're able to do together. So it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm like, little of me, are you talking to me? <laughs> like, you're the superstar. <laughs> no, no. Dr. Cat. <laughs> um, we're all doing the work. Right? We are. So I am a perinatal psychotherapist. I am a public health person and a social worker. And my work kind of combines both of those things. And I like to say that I, I meet at the intersection of the micro and the macro. Mm. On the sort of micro level, I work with clients primarily in the perinatal period. I work with a lot of folks of color, Black, Indigenous, people of color. BIPOC is the term a lot of people use, but I always spell it out just in case. We live in this acronym world, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> and so I work with a lot of folks of color. I talk a lot with folks about trauma, different types of trauma, and that how that shows up in the perinatal mental health experience. And the other piece of what I do is a sort of programmatic piece and sort of thinking about how do we shift and change and build systems of care so that we're better meeting the needs of different types of moms, particularly moms of color, BIPOC moms. And so a piece of what I do in that realm is I'm one of the co-founders of the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, which is now a part of PSI. So always thinking about, yeah, building capacity in the perinatal mental health world to better meet the needs of BIPOC moms, parents, families, communities, so that, you know, during the perinatal period, if they're experiencing emotional complications like depression, anxiety, OCD, you name it, they can look at the perinatal mental health field and see themselves represented there and have a range of choices of who they might want to see for care and support. It's so essential. And, you know, a lot of people who are, are seeking services don't necessarily get to see all of the work that's being done behind the scenes, quote unquote, to make sure that this is happening, but it is happening. And I, one of the reasons I'm really glad for you to be talking with us today is for people to know that this work is happening because it can feel so isolating and, but, you know, to feel like there's not anybody who looks like you or understands your culture or understands your perspective, especially in such a vulnerable time as transition to parenthood. And so, you know, while therapists of color might not be available everywhere uh, right now that it's really in terms of perinatal mental health, all of the work that you're doing is really trying to ensure that is available to everyone. Right. And, you know, not to say that, you know, and to be very clear, when I say BIPOC, there's such a diversity of identities, right? Not just within race and ethnicity, but gender identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic class, country of origin, religion, da, da, da. so many axes of our identities, but, you know, and not to assume that anybody, we're not a monolith at all, but to just have some aspect of a shared identity to see somebody who kind of has an insight into how you walk through the world, Mm -hmm. particularly like you're saying in that vulnerable place (laughs) when Mm -hmm. stuff is just raw and feels a little broken, you know, physically. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you just gave birth and we all know many of us really feel quite raw and broken physically after that, but just this raw emotional time, it's helpful to see somebody where you're not starting from, you know, square zero, where Mm -hmm. you can sort of say, 
this is, I mean, the story that I often tell is that I, so I, I identify as South Asian or Desi and I, I see a Desi therapist right now and I've been seeing her for about three years. And she was asking me something about my family. And I was like, oh, well, you know, my parents had an arranged marriage. And she's like, oh, okay. And it was not, it, it was sort of like, I had said to her, like, I went to Target and I bought Cheerios and milk. You know? <laughs> right. I went to the grocery store and I bought orange juice. And then I came home and I parked the car and I went inside and she's like, mm-hmm. okay. And it wasn't like, it was just, it wasn't like she understood everything about me. And she wasn't like, oh yeah, I know everything about your life because you told me this, this bit, my right. parents had an arranged marriage, but she understood this little bit about me. And it's totally fine if a white therapist had said to me, oh, you know, can you say a little bit more about what that was like for you? Or just responding in a way that it, that's totally an appropriate response, right? But for her to be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> was it. like, oh, you just, I don't have to tell this whole other story and to right, right. explain all these things. I'm like, yeah, my dad came here and then, mm-hmm. you know, he worked here, here for a while. Then he went back to India. And she's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And she kind of had this window into the home that I was raised in. Right, right. And uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's such a a sense of relief in that, that you don't have to explain everything. Right. (sighs) And right. So this is super duper important across the board. And I agree with you, even if there's one way that somebody can relate without you having to explain your whole life to them, it's so nice. So, so Mm -hmm. nice. And you can get a lot farther. Yeah, I uh, I have had experiences similar to that where I I know that the the provider, even a medical provider, uh, understands culturally where I'm coming from. I'm like, oh, okay, great. It, it's it's such a relief. Thank you for sharing that. It, I think it's a good window into the sort of into why I do what I do in some ways, um, and particularly yeah. when we think about like your example with a medical provider. I think about just, for example, this idea of self-care, this gets mm-hmm. chucked around like, I don't know, we, we always talk <laughs> about this in therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, mama, are you taking care of yourself? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think a lot about when we think about culture and we think about cultural narratives, I think about, I think about our thoughts, our beliefs, our ideas, our feelings they're all tied together with narratives and with stories, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. what's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves? What's the story we tell ourselves about what's happening, about our behavior, about our families? Where do we learn all this stuff, right? And so when, when we think about the transition to motherhood, it's important to think about what are all these cultural stories that we learn and how do they show up for us? And I'll put a pin in the self-care thing because I feel like that's like a thread that I can pull through this whole discussion. <laughs> right. But like the cultural narratives we were raised with, we carry with us. They're going to influence how we see ourselves, how we mm-hmm. understand motherhood, how we understand ourselves as mothers, whether we think we are good mothers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking from my experience, I was raised in a South Asian culture and I, I work with a lot of South Asian moms a lot of other moms with AAPI identities. And so, you know, I see so much of how these narratives surface and how they affect folks' ability to understand what's happening as they transition to motherhood. Are they able to name what's happening? Are they okay, feel okay about seeking support? And, you know, that's why I think, you know, a lot of times when people come to me and they're like, well, I just, I feel like a terrible mother. I feel like I can't do this. And I'm like, what, what does it mean to be a good mother? Like, where did mm-hmm. you learn that? And oftentimes we get, if we trace those roots back, if, you know, if you want to go with like a roots and trees metaphor, you know, right, mom, right. 
And she's like, I'm anxious and sad. I feel terrible about myself. I have all these like, you know, quote unquote, negative self thoughts. And if we look at the roots, if we trace the leaves back down through the trunk of the tree, back down to the roots, it, a lot of it is the cultural stories and the cultural mm-hmm. narratives, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Yeah. Um, how do you find that that this particular discussion supports or enlightens people when, when they're realizing how much the cultural narrative plays a part in how they view themselves? Oh my gosh. It is so validating. Mm-hmm. It's a whole range of feelings. Mm-hmm. And the first one is to just have it named for them. If I right. can mirror, and this is the time where it's interesting when we think about how we're trained as clinicians. I was trained, I'm a social worker. And so I was trained to, you know, with a mindful use of self, like when are we, when am I going to put myself in the room or, you know, in the zoom as it were, because we're all (laughs) zoomy, zoomy all day long, right? (laughs) There is no room. There is just a zoom. (laughs) But when am I going to join with a client and Mm -hmm. and use the pronoun we, and say like, yeah, let's think about what we learned. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I name things like, gosh, we were, we were brought up with this normalization, the glorification of struggle mm-hmm. and suffering, especially for women. It, it, yeah, we, we kind of grew up thinking that this is what it means to be a good mother, to be a good wife, this like right. long suffering, accommodating, <clears throat> love is sacrifice. We put our family, we put other people first, even if at our own expense. We always are going to take care of our children first. We're never going to focus on our own needs. This idea, like, and this is a self-care little thing here too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We were raised that it is selfish to think about yourself. 
Right. 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 And, right. you know, I remember my own mother being like, oh, we're not like Americans. They just think about themselves. We take mm-hmm. care of our families. Mm-hmm right? We're family oriented people. We think about Mm -hmm. our children first. So if we go to a therapist or to a medical provider and that person's like, oh, you got to take care of yourself. What are you doing for Mm self-care? And I have even said this to some AAPI clients or even clients who have other BIPOC identities who maybe are children of immigrants. And I'm like, so what are you doing to take care of yourself? And they're like, And they will literally (laughs) laugh at me Uh and they'll be like, oh my God, are you going to give me that white people nonsense? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, oh, what is that? Mm -hmm. What, what is this white people nonsense? Where did we learn this? And I will sort of laugh and be like, okay, okay. Yeah, I I get you. Mm -hmm. And so where did we learn that it was nonsense? Like, what's that narrative? Is that, where did we learn it? Mm -hmm. Um, And then tracing Tracing their like snarky white people nonsense comment, like back down (laughs) through the tree trunk, where are the roots? Chances are it's in culture. It's in a narrative that we learned at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think, I mean, my assumption is, and I'm going based off of my assumption and some things that I I know is this is uh, really especially difficult for first generation folks who are straddling essentially two cultures. Oh yeah. um, uh, Where, you know, there, there's still, uh, uh, maybe a hope or a need to make your own parents uh, proud and and feel good about the parenting that you're doing. And so if you're breaking away from what's culturally normative for wherever home home is, you know, immigration home is, then it can bring tension to the family if you're doing something different. Oh, on so many levels. I mean, and I see this so often, particularly if family are going to come and stay after a baby's born. And of mm-hmm. course, COVID has impacted so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that the flip side of it is that sometimes people were hoping that their families are going to come and they were going to engage in any sort of cultural rituals. Yeah. And sometimes that can't happen, which is a whole other layer of grief mm-hmm. and loss. Yeah. But, you know, I think so there's a couple pieces to the first gen piece. Mm-hmm. One piece is this, and I am, you know, I'm first generation, I'm a child of immigrants. There's a lot of narratives, again, around this struggle and suffering. This, it's so powerful, this narrative, and many of us were raised with this, like we came here with nothing, so you could have everything and you should mm-hmm. be grateful for everything right. you have, right? right. Yep. And the intergenerational trauma of mm-hmm. colonialism and mm-hmm. war, forced migration, yeah. you know, there's people who are like, right, my foremothers had babies and nursed them while they were fleeing from oppressive governments. Mm -hmm. How many times were we told, like, we went through so much to get here. You are so lucky. You are so lucky. This is our legacy, right? Uh We are Uh lucky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have food, you have a home, you have school, you have everything, you have everything, you have everything because Mm -hmm. we sacrifice so much. So the only feeling that in the world that you are ever going to experience (laughs) is gratitude. <laughs> right, right. There is no room uh-huh. at all for anything else mm-hmm. because everything is a hard thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to play the oppression Olympics, you will lose every single time because right. you're not right. fleeing from an oppressive government while giving birth. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> you cannot win that. Nope. No. And I often have to say, I'm like, okay, so nobody wins the oppression Olympics. And the worst <laughs> thing you know is the worst thing you know, and your pain is valid. And yes. I hit a brick wall here a mm-hmm. lot because people are like, but how can I, how can I, I can't, I'm, I feel so guilty. I feel so guilty. And this, and because many of our parents or grandparents 
they didn't, they had to just white knuckle, right? There's just yeah. cut it out. I, I mean, you know, my dad, I think will literally say, well, I came here and I, you know, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'm like, yeah. literally, this is a meme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so what happened when we see moms who are like, well, I'm struggling. So I just need to try harder. I just, that's that narrative of just work harder, just try harder. Mm-hmm. You have to work harder. Just keep going. And we right. all know that this creates more self-blame for somebody who has anxiety and OCD. This is my fault. I need to try harder. Oh my God. I'm not, Mm -hmm. this is not the same thing as studying for an exam or getting a promotion. (laughs) No. And again, this is the reason why having somebody who understands this cultural stuff is going to be helpful Mm -hmm. because you go to somebody and what are they going to throw at you? They're going to give you Winnicott and they're going to say like, Oh, but there's this idea of a good enough mother. And and that, of course, I'm, I'm all for Winnicott. Yes, old white dude. I, I'm, yes, <laughs> preach your truth. But like, I've had, they see moms be like, I, we don't do good enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I need to get an A plus. And I'm, I'm being a little bit tropey and reductionist. But again, this good enough. There's, that's not how we were raised. For sure. Yeah. And also still the, the, the difficulty across the board with A plus is that, like sometimes that's a moving target and also there is no a plus like you there it's not like you reach a place and you get there right and that it's it's really hard when the 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 feeling and the narrative is like really needing to uphold the cultural standards that maybe you grew up in or that your parents are wanting and expecting it's logistically also near impossible if you're not in the country where those cultural narratives are supported. You can't do it here. Right. And that loops back to your other piece of the sort of, you know, taking steps away from that culture of origin, because like this A plus idea, kind of like, where did that come from? Is that really Mm -hmm. what you want? And they're like, well, that's what I was raised with. Okay. What does that mean to you? How do you want to live that life? And then there's this mind blowing kind of like, oh my God, kind of moment of like, how do I, Mm -hmm. how do I want to build this life? And everything that I was raised with may not be serving me well right now. This Mm -hmm. isn't working for me on this motherhood journey. Mm -hmm. How do I decide what mothering looks like for me without a model? And that is Mm -hmm. very hard. And that's where I'm kind of like, yes. We look at our mothers and how they came here and the, the standards that they were raised with and how they chose to live their lives. And it may or may not work for us. And then we look at people who are white identifying whose families have been here for generations and they may not have grown up with these narratives and they seem a little bit less and not encumbered by the same stuff that we are. And we have to figure out how to put all this together. And we're constantly bushwhacking a new path with right. parenting. And I think it's, it can be very exhausting and it, it's hard. Yeah, it, it is. And I'm, I'm also thinking about people who I have a couple of people in mind specifically of um, people who have immigrated here themselves, married somebody from, from here, again, the U.S. being here, and are from different cultures themselves and don't, especially during COVID right now, don't have their mother figures around right. and are now having their their own child who's first generation here. And what, what are you seeing in those dynamics when it's, it's the mother themselves who's, who has immigrated? 
Oh, I think there's so much grief and loss. There's such profound grief and loss at not being able to continue with certain cultural practices. And again, it's this sort of bushwhacking process of figuring out, oh, I can't do everything the way I was raised. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes they were like, I was raised with some toxic stuff. I don't want to perpetuate all of this. I'm not able to make all the same foods. I'm not able to practice the same religious rituals. My, I love my partner so much, but they're not, I have to even teach them. What, what does this mean? What does this ceremony mean? Why do I want to do all this stuff? Why is it important to me? Yeah. So with any assimilation, acculturation, there is, there are these pieces of loss that I think are important to recognize and name and grieve as appropriate. That the whole process of assimilation and acculturation also, I think anyways, in what I was taught in grad school, I suppose, is that, you know, assimilation is gold standard, which I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that's true. Right. That I, I think in order to kind of cope and deal, yes, there's to some extent assimilating into the culture you live in is important, but what does that do to what you want to keep upholding as a, as a new parent and traditions that you want to pass on to your child? Um, it's, you know, how, how do you both preserve really important maybe rituals or traditions in your culture if you're also trying to assimilate and be like everybody else? And this is the thing, right? This is the, this is constantly the moving target. And what I often tell people is that you have the right to change your mind. You have the right to change paths. This is this very, very extenuating time that we live in. And it's ideally, hopeful, I am hoping, hoping, and I won't knock on wood because it'll disrupt the sound, that we are <laughs> kind of coming through the end of this. Of mm-hmm. course, I, you know, not in the United States right now, we're you know, coming through the other side a little bit. And I say this as my motherland is burning with a terrible COVID situation in India. And I just learned yeah. that in Nepal as well. But I'm, yeah, I read that this morning, I read a Guardian piece, it's terrible. But I think that if, I'll speak also for my own journey and for, for clients as well, it's been an interesting process as kids get older too. Perinatal is often this like, oh my God, it's kind of like, oh my, oh my God, kind of crisis moment where we're really trying to figure out how do we live? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do we sleep? How do we eat? How do we get through our days and manage mm-hmm. ourselves? Mm-hmm. And as kids get older, I think that presents a really wonderful opportunity to think about what kind of cultural rituals you want to incorporate. And how do you want, how do you want to build your family? There is some grief and loss with the things that you may not like, I am not good at making Indian food the way my mother made. But like, when we have Diwali in my house, like we get our in- favorite Indian takeout and there are some sweets that I can make. And my wonderful white husband will soak dal and rice and make mm-hmm. dosa from scratch. And Ooh. my South Indian mother is like, wow, <laughs> all the aunties are like, oh, you married so well. <laughs> Terrible, but great. Right. Um, and I think as kids get older, it really presents this opportunity to incorporate cultural elements, but also as parenting changes, as kids get older and my kids are almost 14 and 11 and a half. So I'm, you know, firmly out of the perinatal woods and it presents this great opportunity to sort of talk to them about the cultural stuff around parenting. I have a teenager now and almost two teenagers and my parenting of teenagers is very different than how I was parented. Mm. And that feels like another stage of bushwhacking, right? right? Of like, I, I was not allowed to do a whole ton of things and I have no problem with my kids doing them. And sometimes and my son, especially will be like, well, when you were my age, did you blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh no, no way. <laughs> right. Nope. No, no, no. Stuff would have gotten real so fast. I and, guess. Yeah. 
you know, and, and like, I often will say like, we are talking to you about these things because we want to build trust and we want you to know that you can talk to them. And sometimes I'm like, man, I was not raised this way. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. I I wonder too, I'm thinking as you are are saying specifically about the perinatal period, you actually made me remember a piece of my own perinatal journey uh, when I first had my daughter and all of a sudden, like the me as an adult, the cult, the, the culture that I grew up in, my father's Iranian, that all of the sudden it was so important, so yes. much more important. I had, you know, drifted away from it because, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not like in that culture day to day. And then my daughter came and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much that I want to make sure she knows. And so, yeah, that just made me think, I'm wondering if you see that a lot in perinatal mental health or what other kinds of things come up in relation to, to culture and perinatal mental health? I mean, I think, and there's so many pieces to this. I think it, sometimes it depends on who else is in the family for yeah. like, if you are, you know, like my husband is white and I definitely, I was like, oh, I have brown babies. Good. They look like me. Uh-huh. And I was like, whoa, I, I'm definitely gonna have to talk to somebody about that. That was, <laughs> that was a huge realization that mm-hmm. like, you know, I married somebody who's white and I had babies with someone who was white. Like, what if they don't look like me? What if yes. like, people don't think, um, and well, my daughter, I, my yeah. daughter is very olive and my son is brown. Like my son looks Indian and my daughter is like, you know, people are like, are you her mother? Sorry, I you had that say too. No, I was just relating to, to what you were saying. And again, like you're having flashbacks of my own experience. <laughs> uh, my, my husband is a tall, uh, white appearing, uh, man with blue eyes. And uh, my daughter came out very white and pink. And I was like, oh my gosh, no one's going to think that I'm her mother. Um, oh. everyone's going to think that I'm like the nanny or, or something that, because I'm this darker skinned person with, you know, dark hair and dark eyes or darker than my daughter anyways, very olive, but still, yeah, really. Thanks for that memory. <laughs> like reliving some stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, and I, I do see, so I see a lot of there and it shows up in a bunch of different ways. Like certainly like wanting to incorporate like different ceremonies or religious things or celebrating holidays, but also it shows up in parenting, right? It shows up in the ways we talk about feelings. Like for me, I was not raised to name and talk about feelings. And it took me until I was a parent, until I saw this basic therapist, I, I'm actually terrible at doing it. I'll be like, I feel, <laughs> I feel, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have words. And she's like, you don't, maybe you don't have words yet. And I'm like, oh God, mm-hmm. you're so good. But um, <laughs> I, I think about like how we manage our kids' feelings and mm-hmm. how we are able to narrate all of that for them mm-hmm. and how we're able to manage our own feelings when our kids get distressed or when we feel distressed. I think that we, if we are not taught and I'll just back up a minute and just say like, okay, like when you're a parent, you teach your kids letters, you teach them numbers, you teach Mm -hmm. them how to ride a bike. You teach them like all of this stuff. Like, okay, we put the toys away when we're done. You also teach them about feelings. They're not going to learn names of words for the table or the book or the playground, uh, like, unless you're saying them. Right. 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 So in the same way, we are like, oh, it looks like your block tower fell down. You're so sad and frustrated. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry that happened. Do you want a hug? Mm-hmm. That's all emotional learning. And right. it took me seeing this Desi therapist where she was like, yeah, I speak three different Indian languages and we don't have words for feelings. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I didn't, I, I didn't get Indian languages from my parents for a whole bunch of reasons, but 
I was like, oh, this is so interesting. She was like, we literally don't have a lot of words for feelings. The word for sad is the word that we use. She speaks of, of three North Indian languages. She was like, the word for sad is the word that we use when somebody has died. It's not like I'm sad because the store is closed. I'm uh-huh. sad because it's raining and we can't go play. Right. We don't have words. We can't name this stuff. And so it's a lot of us didn't grow up with these words. So we can't name our feelings for ourselves. So it's harder for us to say, I feel really upset right now. I feel really sad that I'm not having the motherhood experience I thought I would have. I feel very angry that things aren't going the way that I thought that they were going to go or whatever it is, right? We don't have that experience. We don't have those words. And so instead we somaticize and we feel this like body-based anxiety mm-hmm. or we feel shame, or we just know that something is wrong and we are internalizing it as like, I'm doing it wrong. There must be something wrong with me rather than I am having a feeling. It is a thing that is happening to me. I am recognizing it and I know that it will pass. We just can't DBT ourselves that way, right? <laughs> right. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. So I think it's important to, I want to sort of name for moms of different cultural backgrounds, BIPOC moms, first gen moms, um, thinking about how these cultural narratives interact with perinatal mental health, because that's a lot of what I see. Again, I come back to what is the story you're telling yourself about yourself and about what's happening. And again, coming back to this, this gratitude piece that we learned, like, well, I have a house and I have clothes and I have food. What do I have to be sad about? Yeah. We often internalize that and we turn this into 
I have this healthy baby. I have a house. I have a job, et cetera. What do I have to be sad about? And then we, it sort of morphs into this. If I'm sad, mad, numb, disconnected, anything but happy, then there must be something wrong with me. Right. And maybe people in our lives, our family members, whether they're here, whether they're not, maybe they came and we're having this wonderful time with them. Maybe they reinforce this and say, oh, your baby's healthy. You have every, everything is okay now. Right. What's the problem? There's no, what are you crying about? There's, there's no point in crying. And baby's healthy, baby's here. What's the problem? Everything's yeah. okay. Yep. So there isn't this, we, we technically, we have it all, right? The ba- we have the healthy baby. This is what we wanted from day one. We <laughs> were we wanted to be a mother, the baby's here. So we have it all. Everything's okay. Quote unquote, right, right. we still feel bad. It can feel like we're letting ourselves down. We're mm-hmm. letting our parents down are letting our families down, you know, because they did so much for us. They loved us so much. They sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if something isn't right for us, we must be doing something wrong. We must be failing the people who love us and sacrifice for us. So we get a lot of guilt and shame. Yeah. And again, we don't have practice naming and talking about these feelings. So it's hard for us to name them for ourselves. And it's hard for us to recognize what's going on. And instead, you know, if we feel sad or rageful, disconnected, ungrateful, if we feel like something isn't right, it's hard for us to connect the dots for ourselves without this narrative of guilt and blame of like, I'm doing it wrong. I'm a bad right. mother. Right. It becomes kind of this, what I often call this emotional house of cards where we were raised to be happy through our relationships with others, right? We're a collectivist. I was raised very like yeah. you are here to do your duty to others. You are here for your family. Mm-hmm. So if that's not enough, we're not doing it right. We feel difficult emotions. We quickly feel like we're failing. We're not a good mother. And there's nowhere else for us to go emotionally except to guilt and shame and blame. And that's very hard to get out of. Right. So I think you were saying a little bit earlier, you, you almost, you have to almost coach people through figuring out what their emotions actually are. If this is not something they were, they were brought up being in tune with, which like, in all honesty, this is kind of a newer generation kind of a thing anyways. Yes. You know, I've right. There's so many messages that, that could come out of that. Hi friends. My name is Emily. I am a three time survivor of postpartum depression and anxiety. Eight years ago, I attended a climb event and I had no idea what to expect, but I knew that there would be other survivors there. For the first time, I met people who understood, really, truly understood what I was going through. The fellow survivors that I met those many years ago are still in my life today. Suffering through postpartum depression was, frankly, the worst, but the friends that I made through the Climate of the Darkness event, as a result, are kind of some of the best. The Climate of the Darkness is the world's largest event raising funds and awareness for perinatal mood disorders. It is a program of and supported by Postpartum Support International. Funds raised go to Postpartum Support International, local chapters of Postpartum Support International, and partner organizations who are all making a difference in the lives of new families. To find a local climb event in your area, please visit climboutofthedarkness.com. To inquire about what it takes to start a climb in your area, or to learn more, email us at cotd at postpartum.net. 
what do you find? I think you gave an example earlier, but what do you find really helps being able to reduce that shame and reduce the guilt? So much of it is is unpacking the story, right? The guilt and the shame is the leaves on the tree. And then we sort of trace it down. And that's why I think it's so important to be, to sort of come back to this, like, where did you learn what it means to be a good mother? Like, why do you think that you should be happy? What is this idea of happy? Mm -hmm. Do you really feel happy? Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, no, I <laughs> they actually feel terrible, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the shoulds of like, mm -hmm. and then if you trace the shoulds back, where, where do the shoulds come from? Mm -hmm. oh, so the baby and the house and the partner and the job, like that's supposed to be enough. Where do we learn that? Right. Oh, mm -hmm. well, what emotions? And then, you know, part of it, you know, you get the little feelings wheel out. I mean, and often <laughs> right. it's not so much about feeling feelings, but it's sort of, it's re I think it's a, a lot of it is about recreating the story, recreating different narratives. And that I think is the most powerful thing. And this is where we get to the both and, mm -hmm. and holding a lot of things at the same time. And somebody was like, what? I don't get your, your Insta handle. And I was like, oh, it's both and <laughs> it's, uh -huh. I'm like both brown and yep. it's for many people. It's this very like, oh my God, I had a client the other day who was just like, I'm just looking out at my yard and I feel so lucky. And I should feel so lucky that I live in this house and I have this nice yard and I just feel terrible. And I was like, okay, so you can feel terrible and also feel grateful for your yard. Right. Yeah. And she was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is revolutionary to be more than one thing and to feel more than one thing. And um, it feels I, very like, it feels, it almost feels very simple. And I'm kind of like, is this, is this all we're doing here? We're, we're saying right. both and, mm -hmm. but when you have somebody who is like, my parents told me that they came here with nothing so I could have everything. So everything just has to be fine. We can say, okay, yes, all right. many things can be true. Your parents came here. They suffered, they sacrificed. And I feel sad right now as a mother, like mm -hmm. you're nothing. These things don't have to negate each other. You know, I, yes, I grew up with models of what a good mother can look like. And what I'm experiencing now is different from that. And it's unexpected and hard. You can be grateful and also be sad. You can be glad your baby's here and also feel sad and angry. You can take care of your baby and also take care of your own needs. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you, you know, if somebody's coming in and, and they know they don't feel well, but they don't know what's going on, but there's, let's say, I mean, to use, it's not the best thing to use, but sometimes we have to for insurance purposes and whatnot, is to use a, a DSM diagnosis or an ICD-10 diagnosis. So if, if somebody is finding out, for instance, that they have like a clinical depression or a clinical level anxiety, how do you see that playing out culturally um, in terms of having this label or diagnosis or whatever you want to call it? Oh, gosh, that is such a long <laughs> rant. Yeah, and, I know. I know. <laughs> it's so God. Um, and it's, it was ironic. And I'll share with you is that my laptop is propped up on my DSM <laughs> because <laughs> like in our zoom world, like you need yeah. to be, I was like, Oh, the laptop really needs to be at the right height. Otherwise I have neck and back and shoulder pain. Absolutely. Welcome to mid forties friends. <laughs> it's on the DSM and the DBT therapy skills. Nice. Workbook. Nice. <laughs> nice. Both and. Right. Both and so <laughs> I could talk about both and right. And I think I have such a, a love hate relationship with that book because mm -hmm. we know that all of these things are going to, these quote unquote disorders or conditions are going to look different in different cultures. Yeah. This idea of 
what is it to be happy? What is it to be depressed? Like these are all constructs. They're constructed by somebody so that insurance will pay for treatment. And I know that there are many therapists who are like, I do not use insurance because I will not play into, I I will not work with this system that is based on some hegemonic idea of quote unquote health and quote unquote illness. And it's all messed up and I don't want to do it. Right. So we have to make a decision. I'm kind of like, I I want to be able to see people who can use their insurance because paying out of pocket is really hard. And I don't make those decisions where I work anyway, but I often try to, to not, I often will say like, we don't have, we can call whatever's happening, whatever you want to call it. And whatever I put on your form for billing purposes is just a whole other thing. And I just compartmentalize the hell out of it. But again, like, what does it mean to be happy? Being happy is this idea that's going to look different everywhere. And we hear it all the time, like happy mommy, happy baby. I'm like, what in fresh hell does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And I have to say it because we throw this around in our professional world, like happy mommy, happy baby. I'm like, that is some Western stuff. That Mm -hmm. is not how I was raised. It is like, you have done your duty if you have done everything you can to make sure your family is well. Mm -hmm. Happy mommy? What is that? Like literally Uh somebody said that to me and I'm pretty, you know, I I assimilated a lot. I have a lot of proximity to whiteness. I rejected a lot of stuff in my own culture. That's a whole other thing. And, you know, I'm postpartum and some white doctors like, well, happy mommy, happy baby. And I was like, "Uh oh, that is not how I was raised. Mm -hmm. You were talking when you started uh, about working sort of between the the micro and the macro. And that I think includes systems as well. The individual, not versus the system, but how they interact with the system. And yes, there are these, these, system set up for, for whatever reasons, lots of reasons for diagnoses and, and whatnot to be able to classify and understand things. And it's sort of like using shorthand. Yes. Um, like the diagnosis of depression or saying that you're happy means, yeah, it, it can mean many different things, but I love that you are refocusing on what that means for that person and that person in their world. Um, because ultimately that's, that's where they're living every day. Is not right. They're not living based off of like a construct or a diagnosis. They're not living in the DSM. And and again, like I think that's the profound piece of like what can be very hard is like I was raised to want all of this, and now I have this, and I'm not happy. I feel very anxious. I feel very inadequate. I feel very sad. But I have this baby, and I don't know how to square those things. And this idea of like I'm just supposed to sacrifice. I'm supposed to do everything because that's what was modeled for me. I'm like, okay. is it working for you? Well, no, but that's what I'm supposed to do. Where did you learn that? Why are you mm-hmm. supposed to do it? And the idea of like, I can decide, mm-hmm. I can choose how to mother is very hard and profound and deep and also transformative. And that's the piece of what, how do I take pieces of what I was raised with? For me, duty to family is really important. I still do things for my kids that my husband's like, why are you doing that? Like they can do that on their own. I'm like, oh, it's really important to me that I make this food for them. I, yeah. I'm an Indian mother. I'm going to make food, <laughs> you know, and there's, there, and I love that. I love those pieces of my culture. And there are times where I'm like, okay, there's st- some stuff that's showing up for me where I have this sort of like mother martyr lay myself down on the, the sacrificial whatnot. And I'm like, this isn't good modeling for my kids. My kids call me on it now. They're like, oh, you're doing a holdback at dinner, <laughs> you know? And like, 
<laughs> they eat a lot of food and they're like, this is so good. Can I have more? I'm like, sure, sure. Have this. And I'm like, here, and I'll cut my piece of chicken in half. I'm like, you have it. And they're like, well, what are you going to eat? I'm like, I'll have more salad. Oh my, my God. Daughter, especially is like, are yeah. you doing a hold back? But I was always raised like you give the children your food. Oh my God. This happened to me last night. <laughs> Girl, uh, I'm telling so you. Funny. It's so funny. Yes. I mean, like Persians are, are notoriously known for being food pushers um, and like have more, have more, eat more. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. Right. Take my totally the same thing. I tell people like, if you're going to some Indian auntie's house, you, you have to say no by putting your hands over your plate. (laughs) And I had a cousin who was like, Oh no, I did that. And -and so-and-so auntie poured hot sambar on my hands. I was like, that's terrible. (laughs) Uh, Well, I, you know, so coming back to the perinatal period in general, So one of the things that I find that I do is I hold a lot of space for this bushwhacking process of recreating narratives and figuring out how we want to parent and how we want to take parts of what we were raised with and also examine and reflect on what parts are not working for us. You know, again, Mm -hmm. where do we learn these things? Where do they come from? Whose voice is that? That voice that's saying you need to be perfect. You need to try harder. Is that voice helpful? This idea of self-compassion is a little bit foreign, but how do we figure out how to grow and cultivate that in a way that feels okay and sustainable in a way that isn't like activating this voice that's like, oh my God, don't be so soft like those white parents (laughs) because self-compassion is important and this like go harder, work harder, push, push, push is not working for us. And if we realize that, then what do we do? How do we make a shift and make a change in a sustainable way? So I- I feel like I'm, it's some like do as I say, not as I do, but it's like, do as I do, as I do it with you. And this process of, and that's when I can join with someone and be like, Hey man, I'm figuring this stuff out too. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, So that's, that's the last bit I wanted to throw in there. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad you're bringing that in too, because it, it it normalizes the process. Yes. And uh, I think therapy when kind of sort of conventionally taught can be very othering, like you're the person with the problem and you're coming to me, the expert for help. And that just doubles down on some of the ways in which, you know, uh, power and authority is, is used, um, not against people necessarily in therapy, but right. So I think being able to, to join in those ways is, uh, it really softens the process because it, it's hard, especially if you grew up in a culture where you don't go and talk to people about your stuff. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Having those bits that each of you are relating to, it, it makes it so much easier for healing to happen because then people don't have to be worried that you're judging. Right. Right. And it's about the process. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's very much this process of unlearning and relearning. And motherhood is a journey and we're, mm-hmm. we can create it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, especially in the beginning, I think, as you were alluding to before, because it's kind of just happening and you're like trying to get your feet under you and oh, just God, yes. figure out how to do <laughs> basic, like when am I going to eat and shower and all that. Um, but yes. right as you settle into that and you're really able to think a little bit more about what's important to you to continue culturally, then you don't have to know everything right away. You, no. you, it's, a, it's a process. Right. Right. And I, I often say that I'm like, you are learning, mm-hmm. you are that the learning curve is vertical and during the perinatal period. And you can figure out how to integrate so many things as you go on this parenthood journey. And if you don't know right away, that's okay. Yeah. Super important. So 
Actually, one or two things I'm thinking of is, is that, you know, there are a lot of things that you're describing that happen in multiple different cultures, right? There, there's a lot of things that a lot of people can relate to right now. Yes. Um, and possibly even in all cultures. So how, how do you think, or can you talk a little bit about how the, the way that you do therapy uh, and the way that you're talking about therapy right now can be helpful for, for anyone? Yeah. I mean, I think again, this, this, understanding our stories, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and our feelings is so profound. And it's so helpful to understand where any client is coming from. This, this, when we look at our, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about our feelings, we didn't learn those things in a vacuum. We heard Mm -hmm. them somewhere. When you have a client who's like, Oh God, I'm, I'm just terrible at this. Or I always get so angry. And I'm like, Oh, where'd you learn that? Like, and sometimes they're like, oh, I just remember feeling angry as a kid. Okay. Or maybe they're like, oh, my mom used to always get really upset when I showed any emotion and she'd be like, don't get so angry. You always get so angry. Oh, okay. (laughs) She's being angry. Right. Right. So I I think that this idea of, of asking somebody like, where did we learn this? Where does this come from? Mm -hmm. It can be so powerful in understanding a client. And it really helps us as therapists operate from a place of humility that the client has a story to tell and that we're here to listen and, and to, you know, to help like piece, piece things together and to sort of say, you know, like if you're reading a book, you might say like, oh, there are certain themes that I see popping out. There's themes of this type of conflict. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that make sense to you? Does that resonate to you? And so in, in that way, I think it's really applicable to anybody. And because culture is, is so relative, right. For people who grew up with different types of insecurities or different types of marginalized identities, like there's cultural pieces there that they've taken with them. They're mm-hmm. going to show up on their perinatal parenting journey for sure. Yeah, that, that is really important. And, and I, I, I like the analogy that you were using earlier with the, the leaf and the root. We all have those, those roots. It sounds like the approach you take of gentle curiosity really helps them be, be curious about themselves. Yes, absolutely. This gentle, compassionate curiosity will really open the door to, to learning and understanding that curiosity opens the door to so much, right? Because we're, we're, we're operating from this compassionate, non-judgmental stance, not like, oh, that's bad. Like, where did you learn that? I'm like, mm-hmm. huh, where's that come from? Where'd you first hear that? When did you notice that showing up for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that uh, honestly, I think is a, is a skill that if, if people can integrate for themselves can be useful forever. Right. <laughs> do as I say, <laughs> not as I do. Right. You like ask yourself like, oh, why do I, what, where did that come from? Thank you for bringing in all of that perspective. I think it's so important for us to really be using this and using all of these beautiful lenses that you've given us to look at ourselves and and look at people and for them to take on for themselves to look at themselves and into the world because it's it's imperative that this compassion is there. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I'd love for you to just wrap us up on something that, that you feel like could be helpful for people listening. Sure. I think the most important thing to remember is that our stories, our motherhood stories, our parenting stories are still, they're still being written. We're still writing those stories. And 
we often feel, we often may feel like we're stuck between two places. The perinatal piece of becoming a parent, welcoming a baby into your family, it often feels like something has abruptly ended and something is beginning. And in fact, it is a long, meandering, wonderful, nonlinear path that you're going to create for yourself. And sometimes it feels very daunting, uh, like we were saying earlier of the what did I learn from my past? What do I want to keep with me? What do I want to let go of? And how do I be a mother, a parent without this template? How do I create my own template? And sometimes that feels overwhelming. And sometimes it's really exciting. Right. And you, there isn't a right or wrong. You can, you can build it. You can create it. It is a process. You don't need to know the answers because it is all still unfolding and you are going to write your own story. And the story is not over. I want to mention that it can be really helpful to see somebody who understands, who has an empathic stance to the way you were raised in the perinatal period because of the rawness and the difficulty that so many new mothers are experiencing when they're tired, when their body is broken, when the baby is crying, when they're covered in barf. You know, it's so hard when we face stigma in our communities to seek mental health care. So it's seeing somebody who acknowledges that, first of all, is going to be great. And if we have to, the the less work that we have to do to explain like, well, this is what my mother said, and this is that can be such, it can really reduce the barriers to continuing to engage in therapy. And if we go to therapy and a therapist is like, well, you need to prioritize yourself and do self-care and have self-compassion. And you just need to take care of yourself. And self-care is really important without saying, hey, I know this isn't how we were raised. And this is really hard. This is new stuff you're going to learn some new skills. It's going to be hard. I got you. This is kind of important. Let's do this together. Mm -hmm. That can really make a difference. Because if someone's just talking about caring for yourself in a vacuum, in a cultural vacuum, it can feel alienating and isolating. And that new mom is going to be like, "Uh, I don't know if this is for me. And like, this person really get me. Oh, wow. Yes. That's a, that's a whole, yes. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for that and for coming on and sharing all of this with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you, Divya, for coming on and sharing your perspective, your wisdom, and your knowledge, and helping us all push the dial and raise the volume on culturally responsive therapy. Please check out Divya at DiviaKumar.org and on Instagram at both Brown and. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, please do find us on your favorite platform for listening to podcasts and hit subscribe so that all of these episodes get downloaded directly to you. Pick and choose what you want to listen to, and please do share anything that you think would be supportive to somebody else in your community. Thank you for being with us today. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.